This message first aired on the radio on January 9th, 2004. Come now to the 13th chapter of the Book of Romans today in our study. We're looking at the relationship today between the believer and the authorities that are in the world. And of course, this is a bit of a complex subject. It's a little bit of a difficult subject to understand without the context of the greater portion of the New Testament, because the dual citizenship of the believer is a much overlooked truth. And it is the case, as we learn in Philippians, that our citizenship is in heaven, and yet here God has us on earth in our bodies below as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death during the time as we prove ourselves in our lives of faith in the Christian life. And so the subject arises and is addressed in Romans 13 about what is to be the believer's relationship to the authorities that are in the world. This is a especially difficult subject because we understand that we're of God and the whole world lies in the wicked one. And so how does the Christian negotiate a life of faith in a wicked world that's an enmity against him and against our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, of course, the broad answer to that question is he does it by grace through faith. He does it by grace through faith. And as long as we maintain this principle before us, we can safely look at the details of these matters that do perplex us and that face us as we navigate the Christian life. And we can face the issues with confidence, knowing that our principle will remain the same, and also knowing that our instruction will come from God's Word. You're listening to John Malone this evening. This is BibleStudy.net, and we're glad you're with us. Let's just read in Romans 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever, therefore, resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves judgment, or damnation, as the King James puts it, but the word is judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he bears not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to wrath upon him that does evil. For this cause, then, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Now, there's a lot of instruction here that follows, but we have these introductory remarks, and we need to think a little bit carefully about this. We need to be a little bit prudent about this, because I find Christians really on both wrong sides of this issue, both wrong sides of the issue. And, and what do I mean by both wrong sides? I find that my Christian friends and my brothers and sisters frequently actually, instead of submitting to the authorities that be, merely believe the authorities that be, and not only submit, but also believe the authorities that exist. And that puts us into a different context. The Scripture does not tell us to be subject to the powers that are in place because they're right, or because they're Christian, or because we agree with them. But the Scripture tells us here for two reasons, for wrath's sake and for conscience' sake. And to take this apart and to understand it, we have to see a little bit more about the grace of God. And we have to really trust the sovereignty of God. 
because the powers that be oftentimes lie in the hands of the wicked one. And the detailed knowledge and the distinguishing knowledge, the kind of knowledge that the apostle prayed the Philippians would have, the kind of knowledge that we need to have, is important here as we build a right relationship with the government and the powers that be. And now let me go into a little bit of detail about that, because if we're not careful, we could also find out that our hope is in the powers that be here below, and that we consider the governments here below to be executing properly and perfectly the will of God as we understand it, and that's not the case. It's not the case. On the other hand, we do understand the sovereignty of God and that he displays both his power on those who are wickedly hostile to him, as well as his mercy on the vessels of mercy. So our reason for submitting to the powers that be is our faith in God and not our faith in the powers that be. And I think this is an extremely important point of view to maintain. Our faith is in God and his sovereignty over them and not in the institutions or powers to which we find ourselves subject. And I want you to remember that the scriptures are written to every believer in all times since the writing, these prophetic writings, since the time of the Romans, written at the time of the Romans. And the Romans were no friends to grace, and neither are world governments friends to grace or friends to the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, the Roman government played its part as a dupe, I would say, in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ in ignorance and had its own hostility to the people of God. And yet here the apostle says, be subject to these powers. And he goes further. He points out that God has ordained these powers for a particular purpose and use. And God is intending to use the powers that be for his own purposes. And we don't do well We don't do wisely if we think that we understand all about God and all about what he's doing. And so he gives us these instructions to follow in faith. We don't need to understand everything about every circumstance to follow in faith. Well, I depart a bit here. It says, let each one be subject unto the higher powers or to the authorities that God has put in place. Now, this was written to the believers who were under the wicked government of Rome, the hostile government of Rome. This scripture was written to the German people under Hitler. This scripture is written to the Iraqi believers under Hussein. This scripture is written to American believers under the rule of President Bush. And it's written to the believers under the rule of your local mayor and under the execution of your local police department, however good or ill it may be. I've had the occasion in my life to know quite a number of policemen and other people in law enforcement. And here it tells us to submit ourselves to these people in the execution of their work. But I have found them to be substantially wicked people, even as a rule. So how do you do that? Well, you do that because your faith is not in men, but your faith is in the grace of God. Now, I want to say something else about this. Later, the apostle writes in First Thessalonians, and hopefully by the grace of God we'll come to that in this series through these nine epistles to seven churches or ch- groups of churches, and we're going to see that there's another mystery at work in the world that we need to understand. So there's a couple of advanced thoughts that we won't find in Romans that we need to keep in mind. The first one is in Ephesians chapter 6, 
where we realize that we don't battle against flesh and blood and the rulers that are under the rulers of the darkness of this world. We don't have any fight with man. And so we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against wicked spirits in the heavenly places who are trying to usurp God's authority in governments. First thing we have to understand. Second thing that helps us to understand this passage and place ourselves properly in faith in accordance with it is to understand that the apostle has another secret revealed to him in the book of First Thessalonians. And when we read Second Thessalonians, we're going to see that there is another secret besides the secret of Israel's partial and temporary blindness, besides the secret of the church, which is his body, there is the secret of lawlessness. Lawlessness. And we see that in the world. We can see it operate. It's revealed in the scriptures to us. We see that lawlessness operates. And so even lawful authorities can be usurped and overtaken in lawlessness. And I don't say that we submit ourselves to lawlessness, but we submit ourselves to lawful authority. Now, generally speaking, here's what it says. There is no power that is but of God. No power but of God. Now, maybe you've got a problem with that. I know that one man was heavily criticized, Christian brother, speaking to Christians, said that God put George Bush in office in America. He also said, but it wasn't quoted heavily in the press, that God put Bill Clinton in office in America, and he was criticized for saying such things. Those are mild statements compared to what the Scripture says. It says, there is no power but of God. None. That means no power anywhere on the earth. Every authority God raises up. God raised up Pharaoh. God raised up Pontius Pilate. You may remember, if as you're familiar with the scriptures, that Pontius Pilate said to the Lord Jesus Christ, Don't you realize that I have power to release you and that I have authority to execute you? And the Lord Jesus Christ, in witnessing a good profession before Pontius Pilate, said to him, you would have no authority except it was given to you by my Father who's in heaven. And so it is not the case that Pontius Pilate had the power in himself to release the Lord Jesus Christ, although it was granted to him from God the Father, nor did he have the power to execute the Lord Jesus Christ because he laid his own life down. And we need to understand that also, that all the authorities that be are in the hand of our Heavenly Father. And my friend, that can be very important to you, so it's a good meditation for you to have here today in Romans, the 13th chapter. Well, it tells us now, in point-blank terms, not only are these powers ordained of God, but if you resist the power, if you resist the power, if you're against it, you resist the ordinance of God. God's decrees are such that these earthly powers are in place, and we're not to be resistant to them. In fact, today, various resistance movements rising up among Christians are reminiscent of zealot movements that rose up at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ among the Jews. And this is part of the leaven of Herod. This is part of the Herodian leaven that would insist on political means to achieve God's purpose. And the Bible owns nothing of political means to achieve the purposes of God. Let God be God, and we be his servants. And we're ambassadors. In fact, the Scripture teaches us that we're ambassadors of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
An ambassador is someone who is a citizen of another country representing the head of that country to a foreign country. And if the ambassador gets too involved in the local politics, he's called home. He's either dispatched out of the country by the host country, or he's called home by his authority because he has forfeited his ability to become an ambassador by becoming too involved in the local politics. I've actually seen that happen overseas. I know of an ambassador that got entirely too involved in the local politics, and he was not renewed as ambassador, and then criticized for doing that very thing. Now, God could call us home. God could take us out of our service to him, and certainly we would be outside of his will if we resist and turn to political action instead of submitting ourselves to the authorities that be. And when the scripture tells us to submit to them, that does not mean to praise them or to agree that they're good people or to believe everything they say, but it just tells us that that's not what we're to do. We're not to resist even evil because evil means or wrong means do not produce God's good. And this attaches, therefore, to the general principle articulated in the last verse of Romans 12, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now it tells us that rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. I can tell you that I have personal experience with this. I've been an evildoer in my life. I don't care to boast about that. I don't care to detail about that. But I received the Lord Jesus Christ when I was 24 years old. And that gave me enough time to be more or less committed as an evildoer in life. Now, I don't say I was some advanced criminal or anything like that. I, I don't care to give that impression. And it wouldn't be accurate if I did. But as a young man, the authorities that were whether they were police authorities or other in loco parentis kind of authorities, were a constant terror to me. I lived a life where I had to hide from them, and I lived a life of a bad conscience. And we're going to see about conscience here a little later in this passage. But now, having a good conscience, a conscience that's been made good by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I understand what this passage means, that rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. And in fact, uh, when trouble arises in life, uh, I'm pretty glad to have a policeman come by who's willing to put down evil. Now, one of the problems with the lawlessness that's extant in our society is that increasingly the authorities that be will not put down the evil. And that, of course, is a sad situation and one that we need to pray about so that we can have quiet and productive lives. But rulers are not a terror to good works. They're appointed to punish evildoers. And so the scripture says, will you not be afraid of this power? And the answer, of course, is yes, we are to be afraid of the power. We're to fear. We're to submit to it. We're to fear the power just as we feared our fathers when we were young. Well, we'll have a brief announcement here and come back to this in just a minute or so. We're looking at Romans 13. I'm John Malone. You're listening to BibleStudy.net, also represented by the website of the same name. We're looking at the third verse of the 13 chapters, where we discover that rulers are not a terror to good works, but are a terror to evil works. And this is, of course, what we want. We want the authorities that be, the authorities that are in place, to terrorize evil works. The general tenor of the Christian life, the general hope for the Christian life, 
what we desire is that we could live quiet lives of peace. And this is the goal and ought to be the goal of every Christian. In 1 Timothy, the apostle calls for prayer to be made on behalf of the leaders of a nation or of a locality, municipality, whatever in a political environment or social environment you live in, that prayer would be made for those in authority so that what? Not that we can get everything we want. We don't pray for them so that they can advance the cause of the gospel. It's not their job. We don't pray for them so that they can help our churches with funds or anything like that. We pray for them in order that we would be left alone, that we could have peaceable and productive Christian lives. God calls us to peace above all other things, and he calls us to be productive in our Christian lives. And that means productive in everything that God gives us to do. And one thing you can't be is productive when you're in a lawless society. Now, let me say I've spent quite a bit of time in a society that's substantially lawless. I've spent about 11 years, not the whole time, but I have been involved in East Africa for about 11 years. In fact, you that know me know that I was at the site of the embassy bombing in Nairobi, Kenya, when it was bombed, and in fact was one of the first American civilians at that site, a horrible thing, uh, people uh, buried under rubble and not much you could do for them. And let me just say that I've been in a society that is substantially lawless and where the authorities do not restrain evil but actually engage in evil and, in fact, promote the evil and defend the evil. And it is very, very difficult. This is an area of the world, by the way, that is allegedly 75% Christian. Of course, that's a number that can't really be relied upon. But it is an area of the world where one is very free to preach the Christian faith. And one has no lack of those willing to listen. In fact, just to let you in on a little something, we are presently trying at this very time to put BibleStudy.net broadcast in Nairobi, Kenya. Even yesterday, we have raised that opportunity, and we're very hopeful about it. But I've been in a society far more lawless than our own, and the problem is it's very difficult to be productive. It's very difficult to be productive, even when there is the freedom to speak and to teach the gospel. The lives of the people are convoluted and interrupted by continuing lawlessness. And so in that country, for example, there are not solid churches. It is very, very difficult to establish any kind of solid Christian work, despite the fact that there are millions of believers, just due to the fact that the proper authority of government is just not in place. Well, the scripture says in verse 3 of Romans 13, now, won't you be afraid knowing that these people have power and that God has set them up as such? Now it says, verse 4, he is the minister of God to you for good. And that's the proper way to look at the authorities that be. They may not realize this. You may need to help them. You may need to understand their authority before God better than they do. But he's a minister of God to thee for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he does not wear a sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, an avenger to execute wrath on him that does evil. Now here, this is in the Roman context that they carried swords. You do not spank anybody with a sword. A sword is not intended to put somebody in a corner to count to ten. 
we might even put this a little bit better in our society, and that is that officer is not carrying that 9 millimeter weapon on his waist for no reason. And this is now deadly force. The scripture is not talking about disciplinary force here. It is talking about deadly force. God authorizes deadly force in government hands. This is part of the Noahic Covenant. Those of you that were with us when we studied the dispensation of that time, where we saw that God implemented human government after the flood or the deluge from which Noah emerged, you may recall that God set up an agreement with his entire creation, and that agreement involves, among other things, the eating of meat and the execution of the murderer. This was a new thing that God did during the time of Cain. Cain was marked so that he would not be executed, though a murderer. But from the time of the exit of Noah and his sons and their wives from the ark after the deluge, God created the nation state at that time. And the foundation, the very cornerstone of human government is capital punishment. It is not Christian whatsoever to refuse capital punishment or not to think that it's a proper thing. And there's a very big difference between executing a murderer and murdering. And so don't you fall for this nonsense that goes around that killing in all of its forms is wrong. That's just not true. God does not outlaw killing. God outlaws murder. And it is not murder when the government executes a murderer. The government follows and fulfills God's word. Most governments on earth today will not execute a murderer. Even those where it's lawful, and most governments today, it's unlawful to execute a murderer. But even in those governments where it's lawful to execute the murderer, most of them will not do it. But God stands for capital punishment, and so should we. As I say, it doesn't mean that you somehow become obsequious to the government, but we submit and we hope that they will use deadly force when necessary against evildoers. Now, there are two reasons given here. It says the fellow that carries his 9mm or his 45 or whatever your local authorities may carry, it says that he's an avenger. And what's nice about having a public avenger is that we don't need to conduct ourselves as private avengers. After all, God told us not to conduct ourselves as private avengers, but to leave room for him. Does that mean that I don't think I should call the police when an evildoer attacks my home or my property or my family? No, I absolutely believe call the authorities. I absolutely believe that. I believe call the authorities, understand that's their purpose. If they don't think it's their purpose, maybe you can inform them a little bit that that is their purpose. Maybe you can tell them about your faith and say, listen, Here's what I believe. I believe God has you to be the avenger against evildoers. And let me tell you about this here evildoer. So I do think that whereas a Christian is prohibited from suing his brother in the public courts, a Christian is not prohibited and in fact is encouraged to utilize the authorities that be, not for his private agenda, but for the public agenda of taking care of evildoers. Now here it says, Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not just for wrath, in other words, not understanding, not merely because we understand that God visits his judgments on evildoers, which is what wrath is, from which we've been delivered, but also for conscience sake. And here, don't you tell me, my Christian brother, 
don't you even try to tell me that you don't need to follow the authorities, you don't need to obey the law because you're God's free man and your conscience says to you that you don't need to submit. The scripture says you need to submit for your own conscience sake. For your own conscience sake. Now you might say, well, for the conscience of others. We'll get to that in Romans 14 about how to conduct yourself in accordance with another man's conscience. But here in Romans 13, we're to submit to the authorities that be and to be lawful people and to put up with all the nonsense that they put on us that's lawful, all the nonsense that's lawful, certainly not the nonsense that's unlawful. And by the way, there are plenty of people who are not given authority who would usurp authority and put you under unlawful authority. I don't say that you do that. You exercise yourself in the context of what is lawful in the context of your own Christian life. And here it says, you must do that or you will have a bad conscience. So I know there's a movement afoot by unlawful people or lawless people, even Christians, who say that there is no law, that everything's illegal, that there's no government in place, that the government itself is illegal. I'm not buying, and don't you even try to tell me that you have a good conscience about this, because the Scripture says you don't, and it gives detail. It says in verse 6, For this cause, and here's where the money meets the road, my friends, for this cause pay you tribute also. This isn't even taxes. Tribute isn't even a tax in the sense that we understand taxes. Tribute is completely unfair confiscation of monetary resources by a foreign government. And yet many of the believers were in such oppression under Rome. They were not Roman citizens. I would say the vast bulk were not Roman citizens. And they were actually taxed heavily and excessively and even more than Roman citizens in some cases, that was tribute or money given, paid to some other country. This would be as if we had to pay money to Great Britain or Mexico or China or some Middle Eastern country. And some may say that we already do that. Well, if you happen to plumb the depths of our foreign debt and so forth and you don't like it and you say we're paying money to foreign governments that we shouldn't be. Well, that may be true, but here the scripture says, for this cause pay you tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. And so God has even raised up the IRS and the IRS agents. Now, I don't like to be taxed, and I can tell you that the Bible teaches that less taxes is better government. It absolutely teaches that. Nevertheless, we're in a wicked society, and our society has grown more and more wicked, more and more profligate, and as that happens, we get more and more taxes, just like what happened in Israel, and it doesn't make me happy, and it doesn't make you happy. Nevertheless, God raises the tax collectors up. In fact, he even turns many of us into tax collectors. Today, if you start a business, you are a tax collector more than one way. You collect payroll taxes, you collect sales taxes. I can't even think of all the taxes that the government makes you become or recruits you, actually drafts you into the tax collecting business. So here it says there are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Now, that was hard to take during the time of Rome where the taxes were confiscatory. Maybe they were as high as they are today for us here in America. 
but God's ministers are there to tax you and to do that. And you say, well, they're taking God's money. Well, don't worry about God's money. Let God worry about God's money. If he needed money, if he needed your money, you wouldn't even know about it. He wouldn't tell you about it. And God is the creator of all things. Everything belongs to him. He's the owner of heaven and earth. And don't say that God needs your money. It's just you. You want your money. But God raises up the tax collector. He raises up locusts to eat the harvest. And he raises up tax collectors to eat our income. Render therefore to all their dues. Verse 7, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom is due. Now see, there you see tribute is different than a normal tax. Custom tax would be like what we would call maybe an excise tax. Custom tax would be an excise tax or property tax or the state income tax or other income taxes. Custom here is a broad term having to do with money that is raised for public use. So if it's for building streets that you don't think you need, that doesn't matter. If it's for building schools that you think are a waste of money and you don't want, that doesn't matter. You pay the taxes and you pray. And maybe God will raise up leadership that will be more prudent than the leadership you have today. But for the Christian to keep a good conscience, he's to pay every kind of tax that is due. Now, I don't say you pay taxes that aren't due. I don't say that you don't make sure that you owe them or anything like that. But let me tell you, there's a movement afoot, it's inside Christianity as well, that says, I'm God's free man, I'm a citizen of heaven, I don't have to pay taxes, as if your conscience is different than all the rest of our conscience. My friend, God has these people here to do this work for his own purpose, and don't you forget it. Well, we'll be back in a minute. Stay with us after this brief announcement. Now that we've seen here in Romans 13 a couple of different aspects of our behavior which God calls for, first, of course, we saw how it is that God calls us to submit ourselves to the authority of governments in the world. And we, we don't necessarily like it. We don't necessarily approve. We may see behavior by them that is unconscionable to us. Nevertheless, we're told in the Scripture this, so that we can overcome our own observations and realize that God has ordained the powers that be. And of course, we talk about how we submit our persons to the authorities that be, but now we also have to realize that we submit our resources to the powers that be. And so we're to pay tribute, we're to pay taxes for public uses, we're to give fear where fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. And that, those are two summary statements in Romans chapter 7, fear to whom fear is due, that has to do with submission to proper authority of our person, and honor to whom honor is due, honor has to do with money, oftentimes. When the scripture tells us, for example, to honor our father and mother, this has to do with also supporting them in their old age. Something, by the way, that if Christians did, we would have a much better society. If there were some example of this going on, I think our society would be far better off, and so would our older people be far better off. Honor to whom honor is due. But that has to do with your money. Don't hold it so tight. It's not going to last anyway, and God raises up these enormous taxes in our society, in part, by the way, to remind us about what the true riches really are. At least that's what I think. Well, now we have a little break in the apostles' thinking. And he's now talking about our personal conduct with one another rather than with just public institutions. And we have verse 8. 
Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loves another has fulfilled the law. Now this is speaking, friends, of debt. This is speaking of our debt. And it tells us to owe no man anything but to love one another, or to love the other one. Our debt to people should be in our love for them. We should not be in debt. And, and indebtedness is the great trouble in our society today. And it is the great trouble among Christians. And unhappily today, we have churches that are teaching Christians, really, to get further in debt. You say, well, who's teaching them to get further in debt? I hear constantly, constantly, churches teaching the members, well, you give to God, don't, you know, while you're trying to get out of it. Maybe they're even teaching you to get out of debt, and they're telling you, well, while you're getting out of debt, don't forget to give your 10% to the church. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, I do not see that anywhere in the Scriptures. Of course, God wants us to give, but in order to give, you have to get. And my friend, if you are in a debt position with someone, it is wrong for you to go give a contribution to the church when you had the power to pay off a debt. Pay your debts and stay away from them. And stay away from them. You say, well, you know, you're talking nonsense because in our society... I mean, you have to go in debt. You can't buy a car if you don't go in debt. You can't buy a house if you don't go in debt. Well, I believe in the prudent use of secured debt. I believe in that. In other words, I don't think you have to pay cash money for your house, although if you can, do it by all means. But why would someone want to live in debt? I don't understand why someone would want to live in debt on their home for 30 years just because somebody says you can. I remember when I bought my home. And when I first made the purchase of my home, I prayed to God I could get out of my home debt in seven years. I said, Lord, I don't want to pay this more than seven years. Help me. Help me get out of debt. And in six years, I had my house paid for. I'm not boasting about that. You can do that. Change the house you live in. Don't listen to the worldly advice that as soon as you've got a little value in your house, go sell it and move. Now, that's your house, but that's not anywhere near the problem that we're having today in the Christian family. The problem we're really having is this huge amount of unsecured debt. Here's the first of the year, and I know there's a superstition about making resolutions. Well, I say make determinations, make Christian determinations to follow the Scripture, but it doesn't matter if it's the first of the year, the end of the year, or whatever. You've probably just come off the biggest debt season of your life, the one that comes every year. Most people that I talk to have just come off going into substantial debt because of Christmas. Now, this is one of the things that clobbers almost every Christian family almost every year. That right at the end of the year, right at the time where they may come up with taxes due or prospective taxes being returned to them, they go into debt to buy useless stuff or things that they can't afford and contract huge amounts of unsecured debt. I'll tell you, my friend, if the end of the month comes along and you've got a credit card or the payment comes due and you can't pay the whole thing, you need to get rid of that credit card. The scripture says, owe no man anything. And that doesn't just have to do with money. It may have to do with favors and other things or to keep our accounts clear with people. But this debt that families are in, that people are in, this overwhelming personal debt that almost everybody in America is in is a moral failure. And I don't care what your 
other advisors are giving you. The scripture says don't owe anybody anything. And if you can't pay off your bills, if you have to carry them over from month to month, you cannot possibly be seeing the grace of God that he has for you because God is commanding you here to owe man nothing but to love one another. And the Lord wants you to be free first and foremost. And the one who has debt is the servant of the lender. Now, I'm not saying anything here that's controversial. I'm not saying anything probably that you haven't heard before. But my Christian brother, my Christian sister, have you ever made a determination to live well within your means so that you can do the things the Scripture says, for example, to communicate to the necessity of saints? Have you ever experienced that blessing? God will enable you. God will enable you to live inside your means. God will enable you to live well within your means. And don't believe the lie of the devil to the contrary. Well, I've said quite a bit there, maybe more than the verse would require, but it's an urgent issue of our day. Now it says, well, we do owe men to love one another, for he that loves another has fulfilled the law. And then the last five commandments are here quoted in the Romans chapter 13, verse 9. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. So here's the last five commandments quoted. And it says, And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now this has to do with the way that we have our debts arranged. We have no other debt but our debt to love our neighbor as we would ourselves. And of course this is quoting the Lord Jesus Christ who summarized those commandments. Notably, five commandments are not there. The first four commandments that we might say are on the left-hand tablet that are Godward of the Ten Commandments, and then the commandment that remains the only commandment with a promise about honoring our father and our mother. Well, here it says, Love works no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so this has to do with the fact that we don't focus on keeping commandments. We just don't focus on that. I know there's a controversy today about the display of the Ten Commandments in public places, and I think it's a tragic thing that the enemies of God's Word want to tear down any reference to his word. But friends, we don't live by the Ten Commandments. We live by the principle of grace through faith, whereby this love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, and whereby God desires on the principle of faith to get expression of that love in our lives. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what we read at the beginning of the 12th chapter. And this transformation takes place by grace through faith. Our mind is renewed by the Word of God. By the Word of God. And as our mind is renewed by the Word of God, faith comes by hearing, Romans chapter 10, hearing the Word of God, we begin to believe. And we are thereby transformed. That new nature that's on the inside metamorphoses us. That is to say, the nature that's on the inside the nature of that worm turns us into that butterfly. And the process is the grace of God through faith. It is no other process. It is not the process of law-keeping. In fact, you don't need to focus on law-keeping, but you need to focus on following after love with everyone. And what is that love? It is agapeo. This one is the agapeo. This is love based on a principle. 
And you say, well, what are the principles that that love is based on? The principles are in the Word of God. You say, well, how can I love my neighbor? Well, apparently here, one way to love your neighbor is to first get out of debt. First get out of debt. Don't owe him anything else. Get out of debt, and then you can be fit to love him. Now we have some discussion in verses 11 through 14 of Romans 13. We have discussion that points out to us the kind of times we live in and a general characteristic of how we need to be looking at things. And so we're going to take up this last bit of time that we have, and we'll take up this section, and we'll look at the overview or the general view that we should have. And I want to point out to you that it's an urgent viewpoint. Verse 11, knowing the time that it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we believed. Now, friends, this has to do with living out the Christian life. And one thing you can say every day and that is the end of your Christian life is nearer than it was when you first believed. The Christian is to have a sense of urgency about the use of his life. Your life does not consist of the abundance of the things that you have, but your life does consist of the time that you have. And we are great time wasters. Aren't we great time wasters? I mean, one of the things that the enemy does to us is tempts us, and one of the things that we indulge ourselves in is great time wasting. I'm appalled at the time I waste. I'm appalled at how fast the time goes by and how little the production seems to be in my own life. And I also observe the lives of others, and I see that we've organized ourselves conscientiously to waste time. But here the Scripture says in verse 8 that we should know the time or know the season. We should have a sense of urgency. We should be aware of the time that we live in. And it's time to wake up. That's what time. You say, what time is it? It's time to wake up. It's time the alarm goes off. And the time to get up and get out of bed. That's what it says. It's high time to wake up out of sleep. Now we sleep by not paying attention to that which is really life. And here it tells us, verse 12, the night is far spent. That is, the night is ending and the day is coming. Well, this has to do, if you ever stay up all night, this has to do with the darkness beginning to break and the light of day coming on. And this is an analogy, by the way, to this period of time that we have here below. This is our night. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as we go the way of the cross following our Lord Jesus Christ, this is our night. And suddenly, triumphantly, the day will spring upon us. And we need to realize that. So it's time to cast off the works of darkness, the ones that we engage in here below. It's time to cast off those works of darkness and to put on the weapons of light. Of course, Ephesians goes into great detail here. And here you see the harmony between these two books, Romans introductory, Ephesians final to these doctrines. But it's time for us to pay attention to the situation that we're in now that he's laid it out for us in great detail and to put off the works of darkness and to put on the weaponry of light. And that's what this armor is. It's the weaponry of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day. In other words, we see the day coming. Walk according to that hope that you have. Walk according to what you see with the eyes of faith and not what you see around you with the eyes of the flesh. Walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, despite the fact that that's all you can see around you, 
not in chambering and wantonness, and this is, of course, the things that are done at night, not in strife and envying, and that has to do with with one another, my brother and sister, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, put on his essential character, put on that new man in Christ that's there that you know about, that is the real you, put on the new man in Christ, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And of course, before you fulfill those lusts, you always make provision. Well, we have a wonderful set of exhortations here. We're going to find out how to live according to a good conscience, both our own and others, in Romans 14. I hope you'll stay with us. In the meantime, may God bless you.